Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. I'm here with Lord Willett, uh, one of the leading Tory thinkers of his generation, a former uh, former head of the Centre Policy Studies, where CapEx is based, um, former member of Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, former universities minister, and now the executive chairman of the Resolution Foundation. And, uh, of course, uh, author of The Pinch, the book which pitted young against old. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction, Robert. Yeah, I should yeah. do my best to live up to it. As far as I can see, you're still on the advisory council of the Centre for Policy Studies, and you're obviously a, a Tory peer, yet you're in charge of arguably the leading left-wing think tank in the country. Is that a sort of uh, strange uh, position to be in? I, I don't think of Resolution Foundation as left-wing or right-wing. We're a non-party think tank, uh, and it's got... The fact that it's... Uh, got me as the executive chair and Torsten Bell who used to work for the Labour Party working together I think shows that we cross party because actually Torsten and I share a guilty secret in that really we both began our careers as treasury officials <laughs> and uh, he was corrupted by Alistair Darling and, be- and moved over to be a special advisor I was corrupted by Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher and uh, as you say worked in her policy unit which is a uh, fantastic uh, opportunity, but uh, I think re- resolution is is cross party. It doesn't have a particular party allegiance. And what we care about, which is living standards, uh, and how you boost the living standards, especially of people on middle incomes and a bit below, that seems to me to be very close to what Theresa May cares about and one of the government's priorities. Indeed, there's quite an uncanny overlap between some of the things we work on. There's that. There's obviously uh, my background in industrial strategy. There's fairness between the generations, uh, many of the things that we focus on are causes close to the government's heart. I mean, there does seem to be a sense, doesn't there, that quite a lot of the old dividing lines have been a bit scrambled in the last few months or years, that people, the issues people are focusing on are, are not the sort of the old-fashioned left and right, uh, or certainly the solutions, and the problems and solutions are not the old-fashioned sort of left and right wing. Yeah, I think the, co- the combination of Brexit... Um, which hasn't, and the divides remain and Brexit don't match neat party divisions. And then Theresa's approach coming in as Prime Minister, absolutely clear that she uh, cares about what she actually calls explicitly the working classes, um, believes in industrial strategy, 
has referred several times to the unfairness between the generations. Yeah, I think, and also I don't think people would listen to a think tank if it just had a clear party agenda. Our, we're not a general purpose think tank, we don't try to cover the waterfront and do everything, but we are, we're focused on living standards, and where I have tried to broaden it, working with Torsten, is that we realise that if in the long run you want to boost living standards, you need measures to um, productivity and industrial strategy, which we'll be focusing on. You need to look at the living standards of young versus old, hence fan-stream generations. And you've got to think about kind of human capital, about people's skills. And so although we're not going to get into schools, we will be doing more on post-16 education and skills, another cause I've worked on. And uh, you're, working, you're writing a book about universities, I, th- I think. Yeah, I have just submitted it to Oxford University Press and uh, I hope it will be published uh, in the autumn a university education it's called and what's the theme? it is a heavily disguised ministerial <laughs> memoir uh, it's actually the though uh, no, because it's being published by an academic publisher I want it to be a proper substantiated evidenced book it has had academic peer review which is a very good discipline um, but it's it's partly trying to explain how our university system has evolved. It's the case for new entrants coming in, successive waves of new entrants having shaped our university system. And also, I'm, there's a kind of story of the... Uh, there's an ambivalence about the power and prestige of some of our leading universities. On the one side, a fantastic asset and also a great protector of freedoms, including, of course, academic freedoms and freedom of research. Uh, but also, it can mean that they can get away with not focusing as much on teaching as they as they should do, and that needs competitive challenge. Well, especially because the incentives are towards research quite often. The, the, the grants, certainly under the current system, have incentivised people to churn out papers of whatever academic merit. Yeah, it's true. Historically, the incentive system has been... It's paradoxically, we have done incredibly well on science and research by a highly competitive system a ruthlessly competitive system. If anything, Wormish didn't sufficiently reward, reward collaboration. I think teaching hasn't had so much attention, and that was partly because teaching just used to be funded by a fixed grant. The shift towards fees and loans, and then, I think the great achievement, which is underestimated, is then we were able, as we were now financing students on that per-person basis, we were then able to get rid of number controls so that individual universities used to be told, you can recruit 2,703 students, and if you recruit, recruit the 2,704th, you'll be fined. All that went uh, uh, a year or two ago as a result of my reforms. So now you have got more competition between universities for students. Uh, and, of course, Joe Johnson is pushing for the reform agenda with um, making it easier for new entrants to come in, something else that I, I pursued. So I, I think we are now, I, I hope... We will, I always used to say what we need is a bit more cooperation on research and a bit more competition on teaching. But you, I mean, there's an irony, isn't there, that you are the man associated with the idea that the system discriminates against the young, and then through a generation of young people you are also one of the people who brought in tuition fees, which jacked up the cost of their education and loaded them with, uh, with debt. Yeah, and obviously I'd already written the pinch when I became universities minister, and I'm very aware of this issue, and I, and I would... I would respond to it in several ways. First of all, the most important thing is that more people should have the opportunity to go into university. I don't believe that the growth of university has come to an end. We've already got 60% of kids from affluent families going to university. We've only got 20% of kids from poor families going to university. 
Um, and if you want to make it possible for more people to go, you have to get rid of those number controls, and the fees and loans model enable us to do that. And it's and that is a fantastic opportunity for younger generation. Secondly, higher education was underfunded. It was never a priority for public spending. And one of the ways students lost out is that just universities weren't properly funded to give them a decent education. As a result of the 9,000 fees and loans, the resource behind each individual student has gone up, which was a necessary precondition for opening up a proper discussion with universities about teaching standards. And then thirdly, of course, students don't pay the money up front. Uh, they pay back at a rate of 9% um, of their earnings above a very high allowance, above 21,000. In fact, we boosted that. The, it used to be 9% uh, of earnings above 15,000. So the monthly repayments that young people make fall. They're lower under the new system. It's 9% of earnings above 21 uh, than under the old system. So I, I actually, I always said, we didn't, we didn't sign that, a pledge on fees before the election. I always said the test would be if this is overall in the interests of students, and I think it is. It means there are more students, it means there's more money to educate them, and they're paying back at a lower rate per month. So, speaking of university education, you were recently featured in a Guardian profile of the Oxford PPE course, which you and <laughs> pretty much everyone else in within, a, within the sort of five square miles of Westminster seems to have done. And you said um, British political life is an endless recreation of the PPE essay crisis. I mean, is that a, is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, I think it's a bad thing in a way. It was um, it was a rather uh, uh, cynical remark, but you do occasionally think. When you're a minister with a speech to deliver in a, in a couple of days, or if you're a policy advisor with a speech to write for someone else, or there's suddenly a flurry because a policy meeting has been called at short notice, yeah, there is a flavour of the university essay crisis. Yeah, um, I but I'm I'm I loved PPE, and to be honest, I've been doing PPE ever since. I it absolutely captured my interests. Um, now, there are lots of other people who can do, who do other things, but I, I think that, that mixture of politics, philosophy and economics is an incredibly good one. And remember, it was envisaged, it was planned, it came out of idealism post the First World War. It was created by Lindsay um, after the First World War as a better way of training people for responsibilities of public administration than classics. Indeed, it was for a time called modern grades. Yes, but at the same time, the um, I, I should clarify here, I didn't go to Oxford, I didn't do PPE, so I'm, I'm a persecuted minority. There was a, you know, at, at that point, they didn't put science in it. That was just, this, that was considered to be too revolutionary. And I talk, talking to people in government, you know, in the civil service, they say, the skill which gets you promoted is still the, the ability to write a nice essay about policy, which the minister will like, rather than to sit at Heathrow Airport making sure that there aren't any immigrants coming in. But we... That partly because of the sort of PPE influence and the sort of the way the civil service fast stream runs, we privilege policy development over actual practical implementation and project management and all those kind of things. Uh, I think there's a lot in that. Of course, they are different skills. And if you're looking for someone who can do everything, you may have a very long way. But one of the great features about working for Margaret Thatcher in the policy in the 80s is that we had a rule that I think was initiated by the head of uni in my time, John Redwood, who was a fantastic boss to be working for. Um, and he, the idea was that we should spend at least a day a week outside London. Um, so I was doing Treasury and DHSS, as then was Health and Social Security uh, for Margaret Thatcher. And you would go to a benefit office and sit in on a benefit office or visit a hospital or go and talk to some small businesses and especially 
as the years passed, and for, and for Margaret Thatcher, I mean, if visiting any of those places, you'd get protests on the outside and you get fresh paint on the inside and neither was a very good guide to what was going on. She really loved the, a kind of salty note for her which just described this is what I saw and this is what people were saying to me. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so it's very, it's very important to do that. And remember one of the great strengths of the British political system the con is the constituency link. And uh, those ministers gathering around a cabinet committee uh, table on a Monday morning will have spent Friday and Saturday very possibly in their constituencies absolutely confronting real world issues. So I don't think it's um, uh, so there are very important correctives in the system. And you said that, you know, PPE, it was a kind of love affair. I mean, was, was that always the plan? Or did you just, you know, did you, from a very young age, were you sort of reading, uh, reading Churchill's speeches and think, picturing yourself on the green benches? I wasn't particularly political, no. I mean, I was interested in it. I was, if anything, exciting more interested in the philosophy side, in the way that sort of very uh, pretentious teenagers <laughs> are. Um, and was... Uh, interested in how they do things in Germany, studied German for A-level. Uh, I then went into the Treasury as an official, and I guess, although I'd also worked for a time for Nigel Lawson, I guess it was the... Um, my wife thought when we got married that she was marrying someone who was going to have a career as a Treasury civil servant. Or, and um, so it wasn't all... So, so uh, although I had done some politics... I wasn't determined for a very early age to get into politics. It was actually working for Margaret Thatcher that was the final clincher for me because I thought, um, I don't just want to be a backroom boy. And it's very easy for people to sit in the backroom and recommend things, but there's someone who's actually got to stand up and take the flak for it and deliver the speeches for it and explain it to people who object. Um, and I thought that's it. And unless you can do that part of it, uh, you weren't really taking responsibility. So it was... Now, so my real decision was when I left Number Ten. I had my had this time in my twenties working in the Treasury, and then in Number Ten for nine or ten years. It was then the decision that I took actually to go and work at the Centre for Policy Studies rather than go back to Treasury to resume my Treasury career as an official. And were you sort of conscious of, of in a way, sort of that your job was to sort of provide ammunition for for the Thatcher Revolution to sort of keep the sort of shovel coal into the into the oven. Yeah, there was a then there were there were large areas of of public policy where the kind of the free market revolution in ideas you know hadn't hadn't really reached and so we did a lot of the early work on industries that one could privatise and did some of the first papers saying yes you could actually privatise the coal industry or you could indeed look at privatising well incidentally one of my great regrets about railway privatisation is we wanted an integrated model where there were regional companies that had both track and ran the railway line uh, and, and ran railway services uh, which had been more the Victorian model but uh, so there was privatisation there was, I also had got very interested in welfare reform uh, there were very lively debates in the US that was sometimes ahead of us, sometimes not so we did we did, we did, we did a, a quite a lot of stuff she didn't always of course just agree with what you did but I think we were she did listen to us and we did have a line into number 10 and and in fact it was quite useful for ministers 
for us to float an idea and then to see if it worked or if it was shot down in flames and there was no embarrassment for a minister if, and if something we proposed clearly wasn't viable. On the other hand, we could sometimes fly a kite and establish it was viable and then the ministers would pick it up. So one of the kites you flew, although possibly slightly later, was the private finance, finance initiative, I mean, which Private Eye sort of squarely blamed on you. I mean, guilty as charged on that? I can't remember. I, 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 the private financing. Certainly, there's a pamphlet in about ninety three, ninety four, where you argue that why should why shouldn't the public sector build and run and own hospitals uh, along the model which eventually gets taken up by well, primarily by Gordon Brown. Yeah, I think I certainly um, argued that there were greater opportunities for private finance in the NHS. Yes, I do remember arguing that. Um, whether I'm the author of the policy, I don't know, it's been, a, it's certainly, that idea has been around, and my view, I think is, which is, to be honest, I think is broadly what it, still what it was then, which is, if this is simply a device for taking an item off the public sector's balance sheet in order to um, flatter the public finance statistics, it's not worth doing. If you really can harness uh, innovation, and our private providers can do things differently, and um, challenge a conventional model which may not be very efficient, then you should turn to alternative providers. Uh, I think that's what I argued then, and it's, that's broadly what I still believe. So you, there's a sort of interesting transition in your thinking, though, um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure where, when, it, when it happens, but there's a lovely quote you give, uh, Fraser Nelson, that um, a, a conservative is a free marketeer with a family. That you, know, you, that you, sort of, you gradually drift from talking about... You know the, the, the institutions of the state and privatisation and that kind of thing to talking about the state's effect on the individual and uh, ideas like civic conservatism, which is the sort of the big society before the big society. Yes, I do say because it, 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 I began. Um, the, there was a there was a thought process which no, it wasn't just a thought process. There was a set of experiences. As a twenty-year-old, I would be ripping open with excitement the latest pamphlet from the Institute of Economic Affairs, or indeed from the CPS. And the excitement was all the cutting-edge dynamism of applying free market solutions to what I saw then as parts of British state, or indeed you know, British economic life, which were not competitive or not. Productive, and I still think in that back in 1979, that is what Britain needed. Uh, we had, you know, we were grossly underperforming. We were the sick man of Europe. Um, but I guess two things happened. Barrel. First of all, of course, uh, I, you're right. The quote from Fraser Nelson. Um, I did describe myself as a conservative, being a free marketeer with children. And you don't. And suddenly, and that kind of libertarian agenda which I'm not sure I was ever a full-blown libertarian, but kind of just every should have availability of drugs and be... Rip it up and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, is that when you've got kids of, of your own, you do care more about the environment within which they are living, the culture, the wider environment in which they're being brought up, firstly. And secondly, also, Britain's problems changed. Um, and one of my... And I think sometimes people who claim to be supporters of Margaret Thatcher today don't fully engaged with the way her own thinking developed. And of course she was a free marketeer, but also actually because she was a devout Christian she thought all of this market economy had to be set in a wider moral framework. Uh, and for her, and I did talk to her about it from time to time, 
for her, whenever confronted with these problems, are oh, you're just rewarding consumption and debt and it's everyone for himself and devil take the homos, she would immediately talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the talents. For her, it was clear that we were citizens with a duty to fellow citizens, which was for her something that she took from the Bible. And, and the, the idea that you can only, the, the Good Samaritan can only help out because he has the money to help out via wealth creation. Exactly. And I, so I remember, for example, discussing tax cuts with her, and she, she thought one of the main arguments for cutting the higher rate of tax was then there would be less tax avoidance and less tax evasion, and people would be able to give more to charity as a result. Um, now... Um, in some ways, and you kind of refer to civic conservatism, both in civic conservatism and more recently in The Pinch, my book about fairness between the generations, I am trying to find ways in which a conservative can express these type of thoughts about what holds a society together without depending on prior religious belief. And civic conservatism is about the role of the of institutions in creating cooperative environments and the pinch is about obligations between the generations as something that holds a society together so I'm looking for conservative accounts that are neither neither socialistic nor depend on prior religious belief because I'm not sure you're familiar with Abner Offer's idea that the whole kind of the, the sweep of Western history over the last 30, 40 years is the gradual erosion or the not gradual erosion of pretty much everything which restrains us from acting on our immediate impulses of things like family, church, or tribe, all of these sort of institutions which, which serve to prevent us just doing what we as individuals wanted. Indeed. And the, and the question is, I very familiar with that argument, and you could, he has written about it brilliantly, but you can in a way tra trace it back to Schumpeter, who had this brilliant critique of capitalism, where he said, which was the opposite of the Marxist critique, Marxists had said that capitalism will fail because everybody's very poor. Uh, Schumpeter said, no, capitalism will collapse because everybody's very rich and they're incapable of deferring gratification. It will erode the prior moral capital on which it depends. Um, so how do you sustain those in a modern consumer society? Now, and that is, um, that is insofar as there is any consistency, as one is buffeted by events and the day-to-day -day issues of politics, that is an issue that, is, that I, I've been trying to engage with for 20 years. And as I say, I think institutions provide an environment where repeated interaction lead to cooperative strategies. I'm sorry to use the language of game theory, but there are important insights from games game theory. I think that a, a sense that people are willing to defer gratification and sacrifice in the interests of their kids and of future generations, and an appeal to the interests of future generations, I don't actually, I think it's very powerful. I don't actually believe in conflict between the generations. I think the opposite. I think there is scope for cooperation between the generations, which we have failed to deliver. And then thirdly, there's the next book, my new book on universities, there is some very interesting evidence that one of the things that higher education does for people is it increases their capacity to defer gratification. It gives them a more long-term perspective. Yes, and the scientific evidence, which I talk about in my own book, just to plug it here, um, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that the ability to delay gratification is the single most... Is, is tied more than parents' like, more than IQ, more than wealth, more than parents' economic status, is tied to success later in life. So if you go back, the kids who pass the, pass the marshmallow test are very young are the kids who will then be doing the good jobs and with the good homes. Yes, and, the, my own, and I think all that Walter Michel stuff is absolutely fascinating and very important. 
the only thing I would add is that we this is one of the many areas where we can fall into the perils of kind of early years determinism, which I think is a pernicious doctrine, it's having a really bad effect on public policy. Um, people can change, and their experiences can change them. Um, and actually, for example, having kids could change you. People may well feel that they care much more about the long term if they've got kids uh, than if they don't. They, it may be that uh, other experiences, as I say, like going to university, change people. So we shouldn't assume that's all fixed when you're in your nappies. Out of curiosity, have you talked to David Laws about this? Because we interviewed him uh, for an, an earlier instalment of this, and he was saying that early years is the thing we need to fix in that kind of exactly the way you were talking about. Um, no, I haven't talked to David. I mean, there is a very, there is a strong and I think exaggerated belief that early years is where all this is determined. And I think, as I say, the uh, the good news is we are much more malleable for much longer. And it isn't the case that you that you're all sort of modern Jesuits and you have to get the child when they're young and then you determine their behaviour. I think the early years matters, but we are as malleable when we're eighteen as when we're three. So changing the subject slightly, you, you became an MP, um, which ever happened, and um, and sort of rise, rise through the ranks. But you also acquired this nickname, uh, Two Brains, <laughs> which is which has kind of followed you ever, ever since. I mean, do you, it 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 feel it's it, it it shouldn't, but it does feel weird to hear people in politics, especially people who've been MPs, talking about these kind of ideas. I mean, do you think there's a scepticism about ideas in British politics? I don't know. I think the um, I've always been interested in ideas but equally you know I, I come from Birmingham my, my father was an engineer my mother was a teacher I've always also been interested in the practical thing of how they affect real people's lives that's why I wanted to become a, a politician um, rather than becoming a professor though I am now a <laughs> professor at King's College London enjoying it a uh, next stage of my life but the uh, no I think the and in my uh, in my experience Many more politicians are more interested in ideas than they are willing to let on. And uh, actually, lots of colleagues have uh, read widely, have reflected on what's happening to the country around them. Because after all, in politics, this combination of dealing with a practical constituency problem on a Friday and debating in the Commons or passing legislation affecting everything from people's human rights to the shape of the welfare state is an incredible it's an incredible combination of experiences that does lead people to reflect on all this. Um, and I think there's a, there is perhaps a bit of um, sort of anti-intellectualism in the media and you get caricatured for it, but you just have to live with that. And um, where are you on Theresa May's kind of take on this? Because she's articulated quite an sort of interesting idea, which sounds quite close to what you were talking about, about inst- the power of institutions. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Society. And earlier in the interview, you sounded very positive about what she's thinking about. Theresa is doing, I mean, I, I think what she's doing on industrial strategy I very much like, um, and the tone that she's taking, and her focus on broadening the appeal of conservatism and reaching out to people who used to vote Labour, I think that's excellent. Um, but you're right, uh, I also think that, I mean, as I've said before, I think the evidence is that, sadly, not many people from poor backgrounds do go to grammar schools. It would be fantastic if in future that were different, but the evidence so far is, is fairly clear. I don't, I don't resign from that, but equally, over, I look at the government overall and I find that from a fair deal for different generations through to industrial strategy, there's a lot where we at Resolution can contribute and assist and, and hope provide kind of useful stimulus. So before his death, uh, Hugo Young accused you, because you, you wrote a pamphlet on Englishness, um, mm. and uh, he accused you of being one of the people who sort of led the charge in pulling Britain away from Europe. I mean, his exact quote was that you, you made much of the changing of the guard and Wensleydale cheese, calling in support some ancient paragraphs <laughs> from T.S. Eliot and George Orwell to exalt the eternal time warp in which England must remain lodged. Um, yet you end up coming out for Remain. Yes, but I think... And this is, this is a, there's a whole strand here which is not understood. The, that soppy image of the maid cycling to Holy Communion, which is attributed to John Major, was John Major quoting George Orwell. And it was one of George Orwell's essays that he wrote at the beginning of the Second World War, trying to explain why he, as a socialist, who hated a lot of the political institutions of the country was nevertheless completely patriotic about wanting to defend a, a kind of way of life, a picture of Englishness. Um, and the point of some of those uh, cultural examples and the associations that give us our sense of national identity, the question is how many of them depend on a set of particular political and economic arrangements? So the question is, can you be in the single market but still have a sense of being English and British, have a set of values and a set of institutions that you're loyal to? I think you can. And in fact, I mean, I, I, uh, as I, so, and I think that was actually the argument that John Major was trying to mount in the speech which is now only remembered for the maid signing to Holy Communion. And well, he was the English and, Euro and British and European. Yeah, and he in turn was drawing on Orwell who was trying to make the same point. Orwell was saying, look, I can love this country even though I don't agree with the political institutions because the national identity that I celebrate is independent of a set of institutions I may not particularly endorse. So I, I haven't actually read that Hugo account, but the Hugo Young account. So that's, that would be my response to it. 
But in terms of Brexit, I mean, you, you've, if you forgive me, you've done the classic thing of saying that uh, Brexit mm. proves that I was right all along. That you know that it was partly the result of intergenerational injustice, and that you know we can use this as a, a means to solve intergenerational injustice. Well, I think that in terms of understanding the vote, uh, I think it was a coalition of the the kind of excluded people who had had a raw deal from in the last 10 or 20 years where even as the economy as a whole was growing didn't think they were participating in it exactly the kind of groups historically that Resolution has worried about and then secondly the insulated people uh, older voters who may be you know coming to the end of their working lives but who had assets um, ha- owned a house with a mortgage paid off where exactly what they were going to do to earn living over the last 20, next 20 years wasn't their a cr- kind of crucial concern I I'm pleased that so far Brexit has not played out the way in some of those lurid forecasts that uh, from George Osborne and the Treasury implied but I am long term concerned about it yeah I think that because remember I was working for Margaret Thatcher when she her great prize the thing she sent Arthur Cofield off to the European Commission to do was the single market and I think participation in the single market has been one of the reasons why the British economy has been transformed in the past 20 years. We've been part of the world's biggest single free trade area. We've become part of integrated supply chains of goods and components moving across the single market area. So I think it is a very high risk leaving it. I, I, and I hope that we can negotiate arrangements that ensure we are as, there is as much as possible free flow of goods and services. Um, yes, yeah, so I, and I'm, of, of course we have to uh, respect the referendum vote, but you know I do have those concerns about how Brexit happens. And I mean, going back to the the, the point about the intergenerational equality, I mean, what, what do you think we can do after Brexit on that that we couldn't do before? Well, the 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 optimistic scenario on Brexit, and I hope that the optimistic scenario pay, plays out, is it is a kind of jolt for us all. Um, which means that some of the kind of reforms that were hard to do before become more feasible. And um, I think there's a fairly sort of classic shopping list, isn't there? I mean, at last we need to make some progress but get more houses built. We just haven't been building enough houses. Um, and that is a, that probably one of the, probably the most egregious way in which we have not been looking after the younger generation. I think secondly, our education system is a drawback, and one of the re- and it is striking how many people we have to recruit from abroad because of failings in our education system. I think one of the biggest weaknesses of our education system is early specialisation. And going back to your critique of those civil servants writing their essays but unaware of what's happening on science and technology, England is almost unique amongst advanced Western countries in expecting 16-year-olds to take a decision which is often to give up all sciences or alternatively to give up everything apart from the sciences no other country would regard that as a good way of educating people and I would love that to be back on the agenda but there's a strong movement nowadays isn't there which uh, in favour of vocational and technological technical education saying effectively you know, automation is coming, low-skilled jobs are being lost out we cannot expect all these kids to go on to university so we need to train them like the Germans Yes, but the German model is very different from uh, Britain. I mean, Germany, uh, the the German apprenticeship model is indeed very impressive. Uh, It's linked to a license to practice, which is far more extensive than we have here. All the different jobs that you have to have passed over that particular apprenticeship course before you can do them. 
Uh, it's linked to much more protection for particular industrial sectors, which people then go on into. Um, so I don't think we can copy Germany. And although we do need a wide range of vocational routes, it's worth remembering that nearly a half of all university students are at university to get a license to practice. They are do, they're doing a vocational course. And another 10 or 15% are there to get a business administration or business studies qualification. If you put all that together, and I'm giving you a foretaste of one of the points in the book, my, the figure I put in my book is that 60% of university students are there either to get a vocational qualification or a business qualification. So the idea that they are all there to um, read Sanskrit or English literature is misplaced. Now, I love the fact that there are lots of people doing Sanskrit and English literature, but part of our problem is we have a picture of universities where we think that's all they do. No, it's where a lot of vocational education happens as well. I'm, I'm curious about this. Was your interest in this sort of sparked by having been an education minister, or did... Did, did sort of Cameron get you involved in the education and universities brief because he knew you were you were interested in this? And would, would, if, if you'd been put into energy, would we now be sitting here talking just as passionately about well, nuclear power? Well, who knows? I'm not, um, you know, there's always the uh, ups and downs of politics, and in my experience of the different kind of responsibilities I've had, everything has got uh, enormous kind of interest and opens up when you dig as you dig deeper into anything, you find how. Um, complex uh, it is but no I remember early on conversation with David Cameron where he did ask me uh, what I uh, wanted to do and when the education department was split by Gordon Brown which side I wanted to shadow and I always said yeah I, and then um, I did particularly say I would like to do universities and science yeah I, always, I expressed that as a preference and I was very lucky to have uh, over four years doing something I really really enjoy. And one of the, your achievements uh, was, which, because uh, I was editing the Telegraph Science pages at the time, as well as doing a, pretty much everything else, but um, I was... Um, <laughs> keep that in, keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 cut, cut. <laughs> But um, one of your achievements, which I know people were very sort of grateful for and pleased by, was the way in which science funding and research funding was protected under the under settlement, which didn't really get kind of covered as much as things like the NHS, but was quite crucial to helping Britain be in a good place, the place it is now. Well, it's good of you to refer to that. Yeah, and I, that was a, um, uh, that was the sort of crucial battle in the summer of 2010, where initially we were looking at some uh, proposed very severe cuts in um, science and research funding. Um, but George Osborne, I remember conversations with George and his advisors, and it went to the wire, um, and uh, but George uh, and I remember the, the uh, I remember the arguments and and it was great. I think George was persuaded, and we did much better in the that settlement in the summer of 2010 than the department had expected. When the department had basically settled for some big cuts, but in the last couple of weeks, I kind of reowned it with George, and he was fantastic. And it, and it was obviously a, a campaign of uh, all of the, you know the Royal Society, everyone, um, Wellcome Trust, all the rest of them, sort of saying, look, we really need to do this. Exactly, and, and throughout, and of course, we then had flat cash, which was much better than people had feared. But you know, now under Joe and Greg, they've reached a fantastic settlement of the treasury with real growth, and I, you know, salute them for that. The, I think what what I appreciated about the science and research community was that I said, look, you know, we can either have the next few years basically you complaining and me on the defensive, or 
you know, we've got this flat cash. That is better than it might have been. We can now try to find more out of the Treasury and successive budget statements. That means coming up with good ideas that I can go to the Treasury with and persuade them of. And, in, and, that, and if George finds the money, we then celebrate what George has done. And we got into that virtuous circle. And so things like the cancer centre at King's Cross, was that...? Uh, well, we, ha we have to be very... There's this thing, the whole principle, where you can't get into... You, you, quite rightly, the politicians can't exactly specify what happens where. But you can take to George, and I always found him very receptive. And the ideas often emerged in the community, you know. Here is... Here is um, here are eight crucial technologies where Britain has got an both high quality research and there's a business opportuny. You know, we could Space invest technology. in those. The NASA's just announced some exoplanet stuff, which actually British researchers were quite correct. We put yeah. we put money into that, and and space is a good example of where um, it is. First of all, um, genuine intellectual curiosity, but you know, I think that. Having, I managed to negotiate at the European Space Agency Ministerial, which only happens every two years, funding that enabled us to get a mission for Tim Peake. And in so you're to blame for all those bloody tweets. <laughs> and, and to be honest, the Tim, the Tim mission, I think, has, has given the whole nation a boost. And uh, as I say, if you took ideas like that to George and said, look, I, I think you know, Britain actually has a really good space sector, and it's both excellent fundamental research but it's also an, an, a classic kind of industry of the future which should, we should be backing I found him responsive so it, it was it, it worked well we had this uh, the, the community knew that if they came up with something that was rigorous it, it would uh, there was a chance I'd be able to get funding for it out of the treasury and Obviously, being a minister, you'd, you'd already been in, inside the machine, as, as you said, as a Treasury civil servant, and then uh, in the, the Downing Street Policy Unit. I mean, how, how is it different to be a, to be a minister? What's the, I mean, it must be, because before you presumably have just been beavering away on one thing, and suddenly you've got 20 different ideas and projects crossing you, and crises all well, coming I, at you. The one, the one thing I was determined about after 2010 was I had hitherto basically been working at the centre in politics. I'd worked at Number 10, Treasury, Cabinet Office, Whip's Office. So, and there is a kind of adrenaline rush and excitement of seeing the kind of the picture from the centre. But perhaps partly as I was getting older, I had actually no desire to go back and do another kind of job at the centre. I instead wanted a, an area where you could have some distinctive responsibility for something in the real world where you could work with with, with people in, in um, like in my case, universities in science, to try to make some real progress. And so what, uh, so what you lose is a sense of the location of all the pieces on the chessboard, though Cabinet is a good way of you know, keeping in touch more widely in Cabinet Committee. But what you gain is the ability to dig deep into something which is complicated, and indeed, you know, by the time you're covering universities and science, that's, that's, that's quite a range of, of tricky issues that, that come at you all the time. And I, and, and, I had, and I had resolved pretty early on that that would be my kind of final ministerial post, having been a minister under John Major, survived those long years in opposition, um, and then uh, coming back under David, uh, it, and I, and I, as I say, I, I appreciated what, because uh, universal science is something that Britain is really good at, um, and you have 
not much direct power, but you have got convening power and bully pulpit and powers of persuasion and allocation of funding. And um, I hope I was able to serve the community. And in terms of your relationship with your colleague, I mean, did it when you published the pinch? Did it sort of cause problems because you suddenly became the intergenerational guy? And quite a lot of what you were saying ran counter to what your party was doing. Well, David was... Uh, I wrote it in the long years in opposition, and it was, actually, it was partly prompted by the kind of semi-accident that I'd spend most of my time in the shadow cabinet in those long years in opposition, either as shadow work and pension secretary or shadowing education in some way, education secretary and then the, this um, innovation universities and, and skills department that was created. And that does force you to think about the claims of different generations on you know, national resources. Uh, David, they, they were very, I mean, of course, this was opposition, not government. Thank heavens. I mean, in government, it had been a lot harder. Um, and David, I think, picked up the themes and could tell that it was, it was, I think, and I've been, I think it did strike a chord. It was a bit of a risk when I did the book, because it was the first book that had been written about post-war Britain that looked at it from the perspective of different generations, and it was a bit, people thought it was almost a bit eccentric. Um, but I think it has, I think the evidence is coming in that the situation of different generations is, is very different. We can't, we are not offering what we should to younger generations. And both David and now Theresa, I think, saw that it was good for the, Tory party to be engaged with that type of issue far better than having radio silence on it but I mean Fraser Nelson has said uh, in a Channel 4 documentary uh, and you know, citing ONS data that you're, you're not telling the whole truth or that you're not actually right that you know, the real incomes for this generation are actually higher than they, they used to be well the the evidence is I mean, there's, there is evidence in about four different areas. I mustn't take you through the whole book and all the research we're doing. We have a, a special, a special <laughs> extra. Download. Have a, uh, the evidence, it, when it comes to assets, and the two main assets that people build up during their lives are housing wealth and pension wealth. The evidence there is overwhelming that the baby boomers are ending up with assets, which it's going to be very hard for the younger generation to match. Then there's the distribution of the welfare state, the third thing, and then there again it looks as if the welfare state, uh, though we're actually commissioning more research on this from the, from the uh, excellent John Hills at the LSE, but it looks as if there are some cohorts of baby boomers who are going to get more out of the welfare state than they put in over their working lives, and it's not going to work like that for the younger generation. And then there is pay in the labour market. Now, th we expect we expect that every successive generation will be have higher pay than the previous generation. And that's how it's worked. Yes. Now, there is, you can draw different graphs of the incomes and, and the earnings of people aged 25 or 30 and you compare it with what it was 10 years or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. On some of those, the youngest, the youngest generation are about the same. On other measures, going back 10 or 15 years, they're actively worse off. But I haven't seen any evidence that the, that the, that the big improvements that successive cohorts used to have have been repeated for the younger generation. And when so, you bundle in all the other stuff, like housing wealth, then they Correct, correct. So I think that the... So I, I personally think... So the evidence for the fundamental argument, but I think is pretty overwhelming. And you can get picky about exactly whether you measure back 
15 years or 20 years for a comparison of earnings, but compared with the overall picture, including the slowdown in the pay of 20-somethings now compared with in the recent past, I think we... I think the overall picture is pretty clear. But, I mean, how do you solve an initial like this? Because, I mean, surely the, the sheer amount of wealth, uh, housing wealth in particular, that the older generation have built up, and, the, and then the costs of paying for their social care over the, over the decades, that's just going to sort of rip everything else apart, isn't it? I mean, we, we published a piece on CapEx the other day about, um, you know, um, how what happens when we all live to 100 and how the ONS's, uh, actually, the OBR's models don't take account of improvements in longevity. And once you sort of plug those into the equation, <laughs> you know, we're completely screwed. Well, um, there is... <laughs> I think it's not... I, I think, actually, on housing... The obvious starting point is just to build more houses. That is, <laughs> and um, now you then beyond that you get into trickier areas where there's a lively debate about the relative burden of tax of assets versus income in a modern state. Um, and I personally think, for example, the way in which council tax is constructed with these bans means that in prosperous parts of London and the southeast, uh, the local property tax undertaxes very high value properties. Um, but the most fundamental thing to do is just get more houses built. And the reason why I'm an optimist, the reason why I think people are susceptible to appeals to the interest of future generations, is a fascinating um, social attitudes poll asking people, do you think more houses should be built in your local area? And in 2010, about 28% of people agreed. By 2015, it doubled to about 55% of people agreeing that more houses should be built in their area. And I do think that this appeal to the interest of younger generations is changing the debate on housing. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I should declare an interest here. Every time I drive down the M40, I look at the stretch between London and Wickham and think, you could build so many houses here. How, you know, just, I mean, there, is so, there is so much land that we could, be, we could build on. Yeah, and the fetishisation of the Greenbelt is actively yeah, aggressive. I, I agree. And, and the fact is that Britain still has large amounts of greenery. We're not, I'm, well, I'm calling for Britain to be concreted over because so, equally... Although Bushy Park, you can, you know, <laughs> you've got Richmond Park next to it. You've got, well, you know, there's Wimbledon Common. There's, uh, well, you look, look at the amount of farmland there is within the M25. And the thing, anyway, uh, I think I got some figures in the pinch on that. So... Uh, it should be possible. So we're not asking for something absurd. We're only saying we should be able to do what Harry Macmillan did in the 1950s and indeed was done in the 1960s. Britain used to be able to produce 300,000 houses a year. It is a national scandal that we've now been struggling to produce 150,000. And, I mean, obviously you sort of agree, you do quite a lot of work here on resolution on the, the sort of diagnosing the problems and, you know, you, know, you guys churn out some really good data and um, statistics on the nature of the problem. But presumably you and... Torsten and others would completely disagree about many of the solutions. No, not necessarily. And in fact, I, I want us to do more on the sort of the answering, the, the addressing some of the policy issues. And one framework within which we're doing that is I have, I'm chairing this intergenerational commission, but with, you know, serious players who are also on the commission, people like Carolyn Fairburn, the head of the CBI, Paul Johnson, the head of the IFS. And we are trying in that framework to work through uh, what we could propose, propose to help on this. So, yeah, I think... And, and I want these proposals to be cross-party. They, don't, they, don't, they shouldn't be identified as Tory party proposals or Labour party proposals. So you're not just a, a useful idiot for a left-wing, <laughs> a left-wing millionaire <laughs> to... Uh... So, as I say, if you, look at, if you look at what we're doing, um, what we do at Resolution, caring about living standards, including the living standards of people in the middle or a bit below the middle, seems to me 
uh, something that shouldn't be the preserve of the left. Um, caring about fence between the generations should not be the preserve of the left. Um, worrying about increasingly, as I wanted to do here, you know, how we raise educational standards, especially focusing on post 16 all these things, industrial strategy. Well, I, you know, I, I think the, that Theresa May is breaking down some of those kind of ideological taboos about industrial strategy, and a good thing too. So, uh, so, but what I'm aware of is, look, I remain a loyal Tory. I, I'm a, but there are people I work alongside who are not members of the Conservative Party. But the fact that if we can come up with ideas and analysis that we share, I think that should make it stronger. I think it should be enhanced. Yes, it's, it's, just way, it's just a weird perspective to, to see someone who worked for Margaret Thatcher sitting side by side with someone who worked for Ed Miliband. Yeah, as I said, the, the guilty secret is we both worked in the Treasury. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier yeah. that you were um, a visiting professor at KCL as, as well as many other uh, sort of accolades and positions which uh, you can find on Wikipedia if, you, if, if, you, if you're interested. Um, I mean, what are, you, what, what, sort of, what are the sort of key lessons that you're trying to teach people? What, what, what do you sort of ultimately think about how Britain is governed? Well, I, uh, this is um, an un unfashionable view, I guess, but my view is that if you start, you think to me as a, what I saw as an experience as a student, if you think of the low point of, say, the 1976 IMF bailout, the winter of discontent and Margaret Thatcher elected in 1979, I personally think that the trajectory of Britain since 1979 is basically has made it one of, has been one of the more successful examples for a Western democracy. Um, now there were lots of uh, mistakes, and you can say that, and people immediately say, say that sounds terribly complacent. But my view is, compared with where we were, um, on average, we have first of all delivered more economic growth per head than most, especially thanks to the Thatcher Revolution. I think also this preservation of, of some sense of who we are as a nation, um, I think that's stronger, and the values of kind of being a citizen of this country. So I, uh, so, and I, so I think, and that was above all, I'd say above all, I think Margaret Thatcher's achievement, but Blair did not destroy everything they inherited from Margaret Thatcher, and indeed what John Major had done by and that extra five years was that made a lot of what Margaret Thatcher did irreversible. Um, I think Gordon Brown would have liked to have torn their way much more of it, but he didn't have, have long enough. And we then had the coalition. So, although there are big problems now, and it's everything from how we ensure a fair deal for the younger generation through to how we do Brexit, I hope the historians will judge that period, the po the the 1979-plus period, the 30 years or so after it, as not a bad period in British politics and government. Now, the trouble is immediately say that, that people will come back with specific examples of things that went wrong, and I guess everything from the Iraq war to not recognising the long-term implications of mass migration. There's a long to list. To the deficit, to... Yeah, but I... To yeah, but I still... It's a terrible thing to say... Because uh, part of modern sensibility is to be endlessly dissatisfied, and in many ways, it's admirable that we're endlessly dissatisfied. We never, we shouldn't sit around complacently. You know, it should be people worry about the social care crisis or the state of the NHS. But if you try to take a few steps back 
and you think back to Britain as it was in the 1970s, I think in many ways we have recovered from a situation which the pessimists thought was irretrievable. I remember early on, I arrived in the Treasury as an official in 1978, I remember a very senior official saying to me, Britain is heading to be like Turkey. We are the sick man of Europe and we are not turning it around. We just had the national humiliation of being the first advanced Western country to borrow money from the International Monetary Fund. Um, so I, so I'm in this, so although I'm still discontented with things that don't work, um, I think that, the, that Britain has been rather better served by um, its democratic politics and public policy than sometimes given credit for. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.